good morning again. Uh, my name is Elliot, and the pastor here. And um, I had a great night last night. I went to the Nate Bargatze show at Bridgestone. Anybody else with me last night? It was awesome. One, there was one couple here. None of y'all are Christians. Uh, wow, it was hilarious. Good to laugh. Night of our last few weeks. Um, but if you remember, uh, three Sundays ago, it was actually the last time we were in the book of Genesis. We've been studying Genesis 1 through 11 uh, this spring. And then we took a break for Holy Week this, these last couple of Sundays. Uh, but the last time we were in Genesis was the Sunday before the covenant shooting. Um, and a lot has happened in the last three weeks. But if you remember that Sunday, or if you weren't here, uh, we looked at Genesis chapter 3, which is the fall. It's, it's the tearing. It's, it's, where, it's where the shalom of the created blissful world was shattered uh, by Adam and Eve's rebellion. We saw the serpent tempt the woman, and her and the man took the fruit and ate it, and they committed betrayal against the Almighty. They committed treason against the Almighty and the cosmos and every fiber of it was stained and touched by sin and death. And now there's this haze over the creation because of Genesis 3, because of the sin that they committed. Adam and Eve, at the end of chapter 3, are banished from the garden. So now we pick back up. We took a break for Holy Week. Now we pick back up Genesis chapter 4. We are now east of Eden. Literally, that's the later on in chapter 4 is where that phrase comes from for the Steinbeck novel. We are east of Eden. And we're looking at what is life like for humanity outside of the garden. And a reader might be trained or hope to think, uh, man, I know it was bad in Genesis 3, but surely sin and death will like take some time before it gets real bad. Like maybe sin and death will deal gently with humanity and with the world before it gets too bad. And in this first season, we're gonna, in this first story outside of the garden, we're gonna see that, that is not the case. We will see how relentless sin is in the created world that has now been shattered. So we're gonna look at the first story of Adam and Eve and their children outside of the garden. And if you remember from the story in Genesis 3, the sin, the treason, the betrayal is committed by the woman and her husband. And then there's a section where they are given curses uh, and judgments from the Lord for breaking the covenant. And so the Lord gives curses to the serpent and to the woman and to the man. Buried in the curse given to the serpent is a promise, a promise of hope. Buried in the curse is a promise of hope that one day God will send a seed of the woman, an offspring of the woman, a baby from the woman who will destroy the serpent. He will, this seed of the woman will one day crush the serpent's head. That's the promise given to Adam and Eve. Hey, it's dark, it's bad, shalom's been shattered, bliss has been destroyed, but one day I will send a seed through the woman's line and, and that seed will make everything right again. So you can imagine Adam and Eve, Eve gets pregnant real quick outside the garden. You can imagine like what to expect when you're expecting. You think, you think that they had any hopes and dreams on this first baby outside the garden? Maybe, maybe God's just gonna wait one generation and he's gonna make everything right again. Maybe my firstborn son will be the seed that I was promised just a chapter ago. Maybe could this be the seed that has come to crush the head of the serpent? Let's see. So this is Genesis chapter four, starting in verse one. It says, now Adam, and Eve, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. 
And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. So the first thing we hear right out of the garden gates is that Adam and Eve have two sons. One was a farmer and one was a shepherd and they are working their duties and they are bringing from their, their, their places, their spheres, uh, offerings back to the Lord. So Cain brings a grain offering, which is what it was a very common Old Testament sacrifice. And Abel brings an animal offering, which was another very common Old Testament sacrifice. But if you're wondering, if you're kind of doing some timeline curiosity, we are one chapter outside of the garden, and yet we've already got two people offering sacrifices. And so if you're biblically curious, you might be going, wait, wait, wait. The book of Leviticus, which is where we get most of our offering laws and, our, and all the rules and regulations for offerings in the Old Testament and the religious uh, rules around offerings, Leviticus isn't for three more books. So why are they offering offerings one chapter out of the garden? If, law, if Levitical laws of sacrifice didn't exist yet, who told them to do this and why were they doing it? Well, it's passages like this and lots of others that would explain to us and help us see that the offering of things that, we, that belong to us back to God, sacrificial offerings back to God are not exclusive to those included within the Levitical laws. And here's what that starts to teach us is that offering something back to God is actually something that, uh, that Judaism or the laws of Leviticus didn't invent. There's something innate in the human experience. There's something built into our DNA that knows we have a relationship with the Almighty. We have a relationship with the transcendent one and we must come to him and bring something to him. And that, I don't care if you're an atheist or if you're irreligious, that reality of the innate experience of I know in my finite state that if there is a being of the cosmos, if there is an almighty one, if there is a maker, if there is a transcendent one, then I must approach him and bring something to him. And this innate desire is, a, is represented through these initial offerings. No one's telling them, explaining to them, you must offer something to him. But if you're going to have a relationship with the Almighty, then you will also have to bring something to him. This is what Old Testament offerings are all about. They are always about the offerer's relationship with the Lord. Always. They are always about one's heart stance towards the Lord. And they can either be for one of two reasons. There are only ever two reasons that a finite being would bring an offering to the Lord. The first reason is that you can bring an offer to the Lord out of duty, 
I should be doing this. I know that I, I, I need to be doing this. I have this, this, this feeling that I'm supposed to be checking this box for the Lord, an offering, if you will. Like, I, I need to be doing this. Or there's the other side that brings an offering to the Lord out of delight. It's either duty or delight. Where the delightful one says, I have gratitude for what the Lord has done for me. I'm grateful in my humility for what the Lord has done for me. Let me bring something back to him because of what he's done. Not in order to get him to do something for me. And now when I offer something, he owes me something. That's the dutiful way. But the delightful way, the grateful way, the humble way is to say, I know what has been done for me. I know how my God feels about me. Let me bring something back to him out of gratitude. These are the two approaches. These are the only two approaches. This is still true for us today. When the New Testament Christian brings an offering to the Lord, offerings and tithes, how you approach that says a lot about you. Because one is an offering in response to God for his salvation for us. The other is an offering to God as a means of salvation, as a way to make God be in my debt. I'm now giving you something, God, now I expect you to do some things for me. I know I kind of have to do this to check the boxes and make me feel better because I'm doing my religious thing. But then there's this whole other side that says, we're not talking about religious duty. We're talking about, I actually want to bring something to the Lord and it may cost me something, but I'm doing this out of gratitude and humility and delight. These are the two approaches. These are the only ways that humanity can come before the Lord. One is grateful, one is selfish. We call the selfish one a for you, for me. I'm doing this for you, but really it's because I, I kind of expect something back, I kind of demand something back. The other is truly a for you. Like, Lord, I'm grateful, let me show you how grateful I am. And if you can imagine those two approaches, duty or delight, gratitude or arrogance, selfishness, a for you, for me, or a truly for you. You can imagine that those two paradigms would then, they would inform what kind of offering you bring. The kind of person who is doing it out of duty, the kind of person who's doing it begrudgingly, I guess I have to do this, but now that I'm doing this, Lord, you need to give me something back for what I've done for you. That approach will always be, by, by necessity and by logic and by reason, it will always be a calculated approach to the offering. I'm willing to give this much because I will go this far and I expect the Lord to kind of, kind of come meet me and give me what I want him back from him. Or I kind of need to see what I make this year. I kind of need to see what my harvest produces. And then at the end of the harvest season, then I will, I will give him something reasonable, but not, not too extreme. It won't cost me too much. I will bring to him a calculated offering. The other side of gratitude and delight doesn't ever calculate the offering. I'm not saying that means they're unwise with their offering, but it means they will bring the thing that costs them something because they don't mind the cost because of what has been done for them. So there's a gratitude, there's a freedom, there's an open-hearted and open-handedness with I'm willing to offer something back to the Lord and it may cost me something, but it's not about what it costs me, it's about my gratitude for him. And so the calculated approach versus the free approach, the open-hearted approach, are the two heart stances that will show you what kind of giver you are will show you what kind of heart stance you have. There's a joy, there's a freedom, there's a trust to bring your first fruits. And then there's a calculated, closed-hearted, closed-fist, selfish approach in this camp. So with those categories in mind, Cain and Abel being human beings with it wired into their DNA, let's see what camp they come in. This is how Cain and Abel come to the Lord, verses three through five. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. 
So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Okay. This is kind of the brilliance of Hebrew text and Hebrew narrative, Hebrew stories. It's trying to show the reader these two categories, duty versus delight, gratitude versus closed-fistedness. It's showing us these categories by the way it describes the offerings. And so any Hebrew reader who would read this in its original language or hear this in the original language would know just based on the descriptions of the offering, we see what kind of offerers we were dealing with. Cain gets some very boring, mundane, uh, non-descriptive words about his offering. Cain, he brought an offering. That's all he did. But Abel, Abel brought his first fruits. Abel brought his fatty parts of meat. Like Abel didn't bring fillets because fillets are terrible. Abel, Abel brought a fatty cut of meat where all the flavor is, okay? Abel brought what, something that actually cost him something. Why fillets cost more, I have no idea. They're terrible. But the, the, the idea that, that Abel is, like for a Jewish person to hear this, Abel brought the fatty meats. He brought the finest cut. He brought the most expensive cut he had. Cain definitely didn't bring his best. Definitely didn't bring his first fruits. He brought, he brought something. He, brought, he, did, he checked a box. He did something. But Abel... Abel brought his first fruits. And so the way that the passage is even describing the offering is meant to try to show the reader what kind of offerers we're dealing with. And this is not rocket science. Like if you just read this, the first five verses, and then you hear how the Lord responds to each one, it makes sense. It's, it's not crazy that the Lord sees the offerings and he honors Abel's offering. Abel, you brought me an offering from your heart. You brought me an offering that cost you something because you had so much gratitude for me. You were bringing an offering for the Lord. Cain, you, you didn't do that. So the Lord doesn't honor his offering. He doesn't honor Cain's offering. And Cain's response to the Lord's response shows us a lot about the heart of the individual who brought the offering in the first place. Right, Cain's response, verse five. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. If Cain was truly there to bring an offering to the Lord out of gratitude and humility and saying, this is for you, not for me, and the Lord didn't regard his offering, how would a healthy, humble person respond to that? Lord, then show, show me. I, I was trying to bring my very, teach me, show me what I need to bring in order, because this offering was for you, it wasn't for me. But his response shows you he was already calculating. He was already doing something in his own heart before the offering. Lord, I'm bringing you this, but come on, dude. Like, you, you owe me something now too. And so the comparison of the offerings exposes Cain's heart, and we're told his face fell, which is a Hebrew idiom for he was depressed and despairing. Literally, he's turning in on himself. We're also told he's very angry. He's crushed. He's bitter. Lord, you didn't respond to me the way that I wanted you to respond to me. I did something for you and you didn't do anything back. You didn't do what I wanted you to do for me. And then the Lord, in his great mercy, he comes to Cain. He moves towards Cain, this bitter, angry, jealous, half-hearted offerer, Cain. The Lord comes to him and he says to Cain, Cain, verse six, why, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Just so you know, anytime in scripture that the Lord asks a question, he's never looking for information. The Lord already knows the answer. The Lord in his tenderness asks questions, not because he needs to know the answer, but because the recipient needs to know the answer. 
Cain, you need to admit out loud why your face has fallen and why you're so angry. This is so merciful of the Lord. He's such a good counselor. He's asking tender-hearted questions to a depressed man who has turned in on himself. I, he says, literally says to him, I, I see you're, you're downcast. I see your face has fallen. He comes to this man and asks him questions. And then he even says to him, verse seven, if you do well, meaning if you bring a different offering, if you do this from your heart and not out of duty, but out of delight, he says, will you not be accepted? Like, I'm not playing favorites here, Cain. I actually want you too. I'm showing you there's a way back to me. You've already left me and you're already angry and you're turning in on yourself. I'm saying, come back to me. There's a way back to me. Do this well next time. Do this the right way with your whole heart next time. He's essentially coming to him and saying, lift your head, Cain. It's not over. It's okay. Yeah, you messed up. You brought a half-hearted offering that was manipulative and trying to do this so that you could get something from me and you didn't bring your firsts. But I'm not leaving you. You didn't bring an offering from your heart and that's okay, come back to me now. You can still bring your whole heart to me. It's really interesting kind of to look at the, like Cain brings a half-hearted offering to the Lord and the Lord's response to Cain is not half-hearted. The Lord comes back to him and says, hey dude, you gave me half of your heart, I'm giving you all of mine. I'm making an offering to you. Come back to me. Lift up your head, it's okay. And so in the face of being slighted by Cain, the Lord shows him mercy and gentleness and tenderness. And then after he's tender with him and says, hey, I, I, I care about you, Cain, come on back. Then he has a loving warning for him. He's basically trying to lovingly guide him back home. And he says this, into verse seven. And if you do... If you do well, will you not be accepted? Next line. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In other words, Cain, there is a way back to me. This relationship is not over. I'm giving you my whole heart. Come on back to me. I'm full of mercy and tenderness towards you, but you, you need to beware. I at least need to inform you. Sin is crouching at your door. Be careful. This is the first time uh, the word sin is used in the Bible. Sin takes place in the chapter before, chapter three. But it's the first time that sin is mentioned by name. And I know, I know this is not a, that sin is not a culturally accepted word at the moment. It's not a very culturally popular word at the moment. Please hear this though. Like if you're visiting or checking us out, this is not a like culture war church. We're not talking about that. All that I say that for is to say to you, hey, um, sometimes the Bible has categories for things that are really helpful for us that no modern terminology or no modern category can help us the way that using the biblical category would help us. Like sin is, is, so, is such a helpful category. Sin needs to be defined and redefined and understood properly so that we can understand what's going on. Do you know that sin is what is tearing the world apart right now? And the category of sin uh, properly understood will help us understand what the heck's going on Sin is what is tearing marriages apart. It's what's tearing systems apart. It's what's tearing relationships apart. Sin is doing something in the world. And if we remove that category, then we will not understand what's happening. And the first time that it's mentioned in the Bible, the Lord is trying to help us see something about sin so that we can understand when we are in the world how sin works and what its goal is and what it's trying to do. And the way that it's first introduced to us is with this image 
such a helpful image. It says, sin, Cain, is crouching at the door. It's the same word in other Hebrew texts and stories that is used of leopards or tigers or predatory animals that crouch in the shadows and crouch in the brush, coiled and ready to spring up. And it's not because they're there to coil and spring up to throw a surprise party. They are there to kill their victim. And so what the Lord does is he says, hey, sin is crouching at your door. It is right outside of you. It is right near to you. And it's crouched and it's ready to pounce and it doesn't want to be your friend. It wants to kill you. God says that's what sin is. Sin is predatory. Sin has a life of its own. We tend to think of sin as those sinful things we do say or think. But sin is way deeper and way more than just the things that we shouldn't have done. Sin, if we commit a sin, sin is not over. Sin is a force. Sin is a power. Sin is relentless and never takes a day off. Sin does not Sabbath. Sin is not resting. Sin doesn't want to give you a break. And sin is not just us avoiding those worldly pleasures that we were warned about at VBS. Stay away from those things and don't go near them and you will be near sin. Sin is a predatory force that follows you around in every interaction of your day, even the ones when you're by yourself. Sin is after you. It's crouching near you all the time and it is crouching down so that it can pounce and kill you. Sin didn't look at Nashville and the covenant community over the last three weeks and think, you know what? I bet they've been through a lot. Let's give them a break and let them breathe a little bit. Let's go easy on Nashville because they've had so much hardship. That's not how sin views this. No, sin is going for the jugular. Sin caused this mess. And since this mess was created, sin hasn't stopped trying to create more chaos, more loss, more trauma, more tearing, more fear, more discord, and more hate. Sin loves this, and sin was crouching at the door on March 27th, and it hasn't let his foot off the pedal. That's what sin is. That's the Lord's warning to Cain. Hey, Cain, Cain, we need to back this up, dude. Hey, you came to me with a half-hearted offering that was a for you for me, and I love you. I'm calling you back to me, but you need to know that sin was already crouching at your door, and I'm warning you, it's not going away. Sin is still coming after you. It's relentless in its pursuit of you, Cain. So he says to him, rule over it. Don't let it rule over you. If you let it rule over you, it will be very bad for you because sin does not care about you. Sin is crouching that it might kill you. Okay, so that's the warning. Cain, sin is crouching at your door, dude. Be careful. And you need to rule over it so it doesn't rule over you. And then as the story goes on, and again, this is kind of the brilliance of Hebrew narrative, Hebrew narratives tend to reveal to us, depict for us true things and true principles through the story. The story of Cain and as it goes is the illustration for the truth. The truth is sin is crouching at your door and if you don't rule over it, it will rule over you. And now if the reader goes, man, that's scary. I wonder what would happen if sin were really crouching at someone's door and the reader would say, or the author would say, read on. Like, you'll see what happens when sin is crouching at the door if you read the next verse. Sin is crouching Cain. Now, reader, let me show you what it means that sin is still crouching at Cain's door. Right after the warning, Cain doesn't say anything back to the Lord. He doesn't respond to the Lord. 
Verse eight, you can throw this up there. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Okay, first nine verses of chapter four, first nine verses outside the garden, by the way, is a display of what the truism, sin is crouching at the door and you must rule over it. Here's what it looks like when sin crouches and then moves in on somebody. Sin takes something that is not all that externally bad, a half-hearted offering to the Lord. A half-hearted offering from Cain to the Lord with a clear path back to the Lord. And the whole time sin is at work, sin is scheming, sin is working. And that sin that was crouching at Cain's door was relentless so that even after the Lord's invitation to come back to him, sin makes Cain hold on to his rage, hold on to his bitterness, hold on to his arrogance, hold on to his deceit and his self-righteousness and his jealous rage. Cain will not lift his face off of himself. And sin kept his face on himself. And so he lures his brother into a field and murders him. We are one paragraph outside of the garden. And we already have an, a shattered family system and cold-blooded murder. Now, the point of the story is not It's not saying that everyone in the room who turns their face in on themselves and refuses to turn their face back to the Lord will will end up murdering someone. That's not what it's trying to say. What it is trying to say, and that the Bible is very clear about, and the Bible is not lighthearted about, and the Bible does not sugarcoat anything, is that the Bible will not lie to you when it tells you the depth of the nature of the darkness of sin and sin's effects. This is what sin is all about. Sin wants to torment you and sin will relentlessly pursue you. Sin does not want to stop at the place where you were just a little annoyed with your spouse over the breakfast table. Sin will not stop when you are just a little greedy at work trying to step on people to gain a little bit more. Sin does not want to stop when you were just a little lustful on the internet. Sin is always crouching at your door to turn every little argument into hatred and mistrust. Sin wants to turn every painful moment into rage in you. Sin wants to turn every drop of grief in you into despair. Sin wants to turn every inch of envy into nonstop judgment of folks. And sin wants to take every lustful look that you have and turn it into addiction. Sin wants to kill you. And it is crouching at your door in order to turn every interaction dark. That's partially why the word crouching is such a perfect image as if the Lord made it up himself to explain to us what sin is and how sin works. Sin is crouching means it's ready to kill you and it's always right outside your door and it's always following you around and it's always relentlessly pursuing you. But the crouching word also shows us not just its motivations, it also shows us how hidden sin can be. You and I don't always see a crouching animal in the brush. That's why my wife is terrified of alligators. She's like, it's not the ones on the bank that I am afraid of. It's when we're in Florida around the pond and it's the ones I can't see. It's the ones I don't know where they are. That's what scares me. You don't always see the crouching animal. You can't always tell it's there 
And that is part of its tactic. That's what makes alligators so good at what they do because you can't always see them. If you look over the horizon of your life, you go outside your heart's door and you go, I think we're good. I don't really see any sin anywhere. Then I would go, yeah, because it's trying not to be seen by you. It's a crouching predator that doesn't want to be noticed by you. And it's good at it. Sin had already begun its work in Cain when he was bringing his first offering. He was already working. Sin was already after Cain. Sin was already relentlessly pursuing Cain. And it didn't try to take Cain from zero to murder. It took Cain from, why don't you bring the Lord a half-hearted offering? Why don't you bring the Lord something so that he owes you something? Oh my goodness, Cain, look at how the Lord responded to you. You should be so offended that the Lord regarded, you know who, man, Abel's offering Cain was like, it's kind of his fault that you got so disregarded by the Lord. Like sin is working subtly and silently the whole time. And in response to the warning, which is don't let sin rule over you, you must rule over it. The illustration is proven what a crouching sin, uh, what, what a personified crouching sin power does to us. It, this story is the, is the example. You wanna know what sin crouching looks like? Right here. It does not want to be noticed by you until it has brought utter destruction to you. And so we maybe grew up hearing this story like Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel, yeah, Cain, Cain's the problem. Cain's the evil one. Cain killed his brother Abel. We all know the story. Even if you're like peripherally familiar, say that 10 times fast, Periphery, peripherally, it's, if you're somewhat familiar with it, then you would, <laughs> you, would, you would know that maybe you heard this story and you thought, oh yeah, Cain brought the bad offering and that's what made Cain bad. It's really interesting to see if you know the story and the workings of sin and the proverb here given of the truth that sin is always crouching at your door and you must rule over it. The story is about, here's how sin works. And sin started on Cain before he brought his first offering. The problem with Cain was not his offering. The problem was how Cain refused to rule over the sin that was crouching at his door to kill him. Sin was ruling over Cain. And the hidden, subtle, crouching nature of sin is what makes Cain so evil, so deceptive, so self-righteous, and so arrogant. It even plays out in his response to the Lord at the end of the story. When the Lord comes and says, hey, Cain, where's, where's your brother Abel, dude? Am I, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He won't, he won't even say Abel's name. The self-righteousness, the lying, the blindness, the arrogance, sin has mastered Cain and Cain can't even see it. Which should, in some ways, scare us. Wait, if Cain couldn't see it, how am I gonna see it? How do I know if sin's already crouching at your door? It is, by the way. But how, how do I know if, it, what if it, Cain didn't see this, Cain couldn't see it. What if I can't see the sin that's coming after to destroy me? What are we gonna do with the sin that crouches. Well, buried in this text is actually our hope for that, our hope against that. It's part of the storyline too, verses 10 through 12. And the Lord God said, what have you done, Cain? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. 
You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Okay, so what the reader should be asking is, Cain didn't rule over sin. He couldn't see it. How are we going to rule over sin and see it? That little line in there, it, it, it almost jumps off the page at us. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. What does that mean? It means that the God of the Bible hears the cries of the oppressed. It means that innocent blood that is shed is personified and it cries out for something and the Lord, the God of Scripture, hears it. When we hear that word hears, we may think like, oh, I can hear music down the road. I wonder if the cries of the oppressed, I wonder if the cries of innocent blood are like the like, faint music and Lord, the Lord in his ears goes, yeah, I, I, can, I can hear that out there, I think. But the biblical word for hearing is way more than just it made, the sound waves made its way into his ears. The biblical word for hearing means that the Lord not only hears it with his ears, he hears it with his heart. It means that the Lord is going to do something about it. His hearing sparks him into action against it. And so the innocent blood of Cain, or the innocent blood of Abel, is crying out to the Lord and the Lord hears it. This, this, should, this should shock us, first of all, that we're, we're one page, two pages into scripture. We know God's the maker from Genesis 1. We know God loves his people, made him in his image. Genesis, end of Genesis 1 and 2, God, God is shattered by the sin and the rebellion and he makes a covenant to promise to one day make it right again. We're learning a little bit about God if you're just like reading through on the first days out of the garden. One of the things that the Bible wants to know that the reader is sure of is that this God loves justice. He loves justice. And Cain's killing of Abel spills innocent blood on the ground and Cain's innocent blood is crying out for justice and the Lord hears it and the Lord cares about it. Yes, it's not lost on me that innocent blood was shed three weeks ago and I want you to hear that the Lord hears the cries of that innocent blood. I also want you to hear that the God of the Bible hears all of the innocent blood from all the unjust killings that happen in our city every day. That the Lord is a God of justice and he loves justice and he hates what sin has done and the cries of innocent blood reach him and he hears it and it moves him. The wrath of God against innocent bloodshed is endless and it is enormous. He hears their blood cry out to him. And so in response to him hearing the blood cry out to him, we're told he curses Cain. He banishes him east of Eden even further. And if you keep reading Cain's life, Cain never comes back home. He never returns to the Lord. He's on the run for the rest of his life. And Cain's response to the Lord's cursing and judgment of him shows us just how much Cain was feeling the weight of the justice of God against him. He says, verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Cain couldn't bear the punishment because Cain knew what he deserved from the Lord. This is like the first moment in the story Cain's been honest. And I don't know what skeletons are in your closet, but I know you have them because we all have them. 
I don't know what secrets you hold that you can't tell anybody. And I don't know if you've felt the justice of God coming against you, God's righteous, just judgment of sin. And whatever innocent blood you may have shed, maybe not with your hands, but in your hearts, whatever you have done and perpetrated injustice in the world, if you have felt the wrath of God and God's just judgment against you, like Cain, you would say the same thing. It is a heavy and awful thing to bear and to feel. My punishment is greater than I can bear, but I know I deserve it. And so in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews comes along. This is thousands of years later. The book of Hebrews is a fascinating book. No one knows quite who wrote it. But the, the book of Hebrews is pulling out realities of the Jewish faith that show the reader how Jesus is the better and more complete and truer version of all these things in the Old Testament that were just whispers and foreshadows of the Messiah to come. And in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer or writers of Hebrews brings up this really obscure story from Genesis chapter four, Cain and Abel. Abel is not mentioned in the rest of the Bible hardly. Like he gets no airtime except when he shows up with a great offering and then gets killed for it. And then the writer of Hebrews plucks Cain out or plucks Abel out from the past and says, if you wanna understand Jesus, let me tell you something about Abel. Hebrews 12, the writer says this to the reader. You have come to God and you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And the reader of Hebrews is going, Abel? Man, that was so long ago. What the heck? Why is the, why is the author of Hebrews comparing the blood of Jesus and the blood of Abel? We're told that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Well, blood of Abel is crying out for justice. Blood of Abel is crying out for the injustice done to him, and it's crying out for justice. And remember, the Lord hears that because the Lord loves justice. But then we're told that Jesus' blood is also crying out. And oh, by the way, Jesus had innocent blood that cries out too. But if you start comparing the two and the reader starts going, oh, wait, 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 maybe Jesus is a far more complete, far more beautiful, far better version of Abel. See, Jesus was brutally murdered as well, but it wasn't done in ambush. It was actually planned by the victim himself. Jesus spilt his blood not unknowingly, but willingly. Jesus didn't spill his blood merely at the hands of the Romans. We're told over and over again, Jesus spilt his blood in the hands of the Father. The Jews plotted to kill Jesus just like Cain did for Abel, but we're told over and over again, yes, they're all plotting against me. Jesus says this in John chapter 10. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Yes, there was plots against him, but he was the one making sure it happened. And when Jesus laid down his innocent blood, just like Cain's blood, his blood was swallowed up by something too. That's what Genesis 4 says. Abel's blood was swallowed up by the ground. Jesus' blood was swallowed up by the righteous, just judgment of God. Jesus' innocent blood took on God's righteous and just wrath for you. Christ's blood absorbed the full weight of God's justice and his blood swallowed up God's justice against sin. So when Cain here says, my punishment is too much to bear, he had no idea how true that was. 
because no mere mortal can fully bear the weight of God's just punishment against sin. And so if Jesus Christ has shed his blood for you, which he has, and you belong to him, here's what this means. If Christ's innocent blood has swallowed up God's just judgment against sin, and you belong to Jesus, it means that God can never, ever, ever condemn you again. Because he's already condemned Jesus for you. He's already condemned Jesus for your sin, past, present, and future. And so now when a payment is required because of your sin and the injustices that we perpetrate, and that, those sins demand justice and they demand a payment and they demand atonement, Jesus has already paid for that. So God can't punish you for something he's already punished Jesus for, for you. God's too just to allow double jeopardy in his court. He's already charged Jesus with all of your sin and he's pummeled him for it. And so now there is no more condemnation left for you and me. It doesn't mean there isn't any condemnation. It's that Jesus took all the condemnation. And so if Jesus has fully paid and drank the cup to the bottom, you can't pay for your sins that have already been paid for. That would be for God to get two payments for the same sin. And guess what? That would be unjust. And God is a God who loves justice. So the justice of God, the, the justice of God now demands that there can be no more condemnation for those that are covered in Jesus' blood. As long as you live, you will never perish under the wrath of God's just judgment because Jesus' blood has already taken that condemnation for you. Hebrews 7 says that Jesus, our great high priest, always lives to intercede for us with his blood. He always lives to intercede for us. And when we, can, when we think about that image, we think, oh, he's interceding for us with his blood, and that means he's up there when we sin and we say, gosh, Jesus, I blew it again. We imagine that Jesus is up there saying, hey, hey God, Elliot royally screwed up again. Will you, will you show him mercy like one more time? Will you like give him another chance? We imagine that Jesus is standing before the Father pleading mercy on our behalf. That's not what's happening. When Jesus is always living to intercede for us with his blood, here's what he's saying. This, this is game-changing. Jesus is not up there saying, All right, Lord, Elliot sinned again. Be merciful with him one more time, please. Jesus is interceding for us with his blood, saying, Elliot sinned against you again, Lord, and I'm demanding that you show him justice. And here's what it would mean, Lord, for you to show justice to Elliot. Welcome him home again. Embrace him, pour your spirit into him, welcome him back home because that's what he deserves now. You can't punish Elliot for his sin anymore. I've already paid for that. And so Jesus stands before the righteous judge and doesn't plead mercy for us. He pleads justice for us. I demand your justice be for him, Father. Welcome him home, clean him up, open his eyes and come into him because my innocent blood has already paid for all of his sin. You cannot punish or condemn him anymore. Now only show him embrace because that's all you have left for him. And that's because if God is a God who loves justice, that is actually just for God to do that. And God is a God of justice and the Bible says over and over and over again, it may be, 
the most repeated thing about God in all of scripture, he is a righteous and just God. His righteousness and his justice is like the mountains. They cannot be moved and they cannot be manipulated. And so if Jesus' blood is pleading for us and he has already taken our punishment away, it would be unjust of this immovably just God to treat us any other way than what Jesus' blood has bought for us, which is that we would only be welcomed in by the Father because there's no more condemnation for us. That's how Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood, the innocent blood of Jesus Christ cries out for justice, just like the innocent blood of Abel. But it's a better word because the justice of God through the blood of Jesus is now not against us anymore. It's for us. God's justice is now on your side, which is a far better word than God's justice being against you. And so, if we're going to heed the warnings of this passage, sin is crouching at your door. Rule over it or it will rule over you. If you're going to rule over sin, here's what you're going to need. You're going to need a whole lot more than your willpower. Here's what you're going to need. You're going to need something as relentless as sin. You're going to need something that never takes a day off like sin never takes a day off. And so here's, here's what you have at your disposal in your war to rule over sin and not let sin rule over you. You have the relentless blood of Jesus always pleading God's justice for you. And now God's justice is for you and he cannot condemn you for your sin anymore. So here's how the Christian rules over sin. The Christian does not rule over sin by managing it or mastering it. The Christian rules over sin by repenting of it. Which is actually what God invited Cain to do. That's how he invited him back. Cain, you blew the offering, dude. You brought a half-hearted offering. Come back to me, which means come back to the altar with your whole heart and come back to the blood of this offering that can cleanse you. Let the sacrifice of this altar cleanse you, Cain. Come back to the altar. And Cain would have none of it. So sin ruled over him because he refused to repent over his sin. This is the upside downness of the kingdom of God. We rule over sin by admitting our powerlessness over sin. And there we find a God who has already paid for our sin. That's how we rule over it. We repent of it. Which is terrifying for people who love power, by the way. Because repentance means we're giving up our power. We're admitting our powerlessness. And we come back to the innocent relentless blood of Jesus that cries out for God's justice, which is now for us. We plead the blood of Christ's blood-bought justice for us. And we are welcomed home. And we are set free. Let's pray. Jesus, we know what it's like to have sin rule over us, to have sin crouching at the door that we can't even see. And so would you make us a people who truly, earnestly, and wholeheartedly Rule over sin by repenting of it, we pray. You're a God who loves justice and you're a God who paid for our justice that we might be welcomed home and you have no condemnation for us because of what Christ's blood pleads for us and it speaks a better word. And so I pray for my friends, especially those grieving and weeping and wailing in the aftermath of this chaos and this sin. Comfort them Bind Satan, bind sin, that if sin is crouching at the door, 
Lord, you, Jesus, you say you knock at the door. We need you at the door. We need your blood to hold off and fend off the sin that we can't master, even in our grief and our despair. Do not let sin master us and make us able to do that by repenting over it, we pray in your name. Amen.